0: It's the next episode in Series 6 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We are at canto 3 of Dante's Paradiso. After those heavy first two cantos, it comes, perhaps, as a relief to return to the familiar pattern of Dante meeting new souls, learning about them and about their place in the afterlife. We find ourselves with Dante and Beatrice on the moon, or or, or rather conjoined inside the sphere of the moon, that pure white pearl we've had described in the previous canto. That canto ended as Beatrice concluded her explanation of the moon spots, or actually she didn't really offer a conclusion, just set up the argument for Dante himself to draw the conclusion, and then she turned to look up at the heavens. The new canto begins with Dante looking over at Beatrice, speaking of her as the sun, which, when he first saw her, warmed his breast with love and now is opening him to the truth, the sun which both enlightens and warms things to promote their germination and growth. Dante is about to say he gets the point of her argument when he's suddenly stopped by a new strange sight. Remember, he's there inside the sphere of the moon, a solid body, but nevertheless able to absorb Dante without any disturbance, either of the moon's substance or Dante's. It now looks to him as though he sees several faces looking at him as though prepared to speak. But these faces don't appear to be like faces we encounter straight on. They look like reflections, and Dante turns around in hopes of seeing the people whose reflections have been cast up there in front of him as on a mirror, But there's no one behind him. Puzzled, he turns to Beatrice, who can read his mind, and she smiles at him. It's only natural, she says, that I'm smiling at you. You are thinking like a little child, I'm afraid, and are turning the wrong way around from the truth. They're not reflections, but real people who are here at the lunar sphere because they didn't keep their vows. Go ahead and talk with them, and listen to what they have to say. They're so devoted to God that they cannot give you anything but the truth. And so Dante turns to one of those souls who seems to want more than any of the others to speak with him. Dante begins in the old familiar manner of addressing the soul by its quality. "O oh, you who are made for heavenly joy and are now experiencing that joy in heaven, and then asking for that person's name and situation and the nature of the place they're all finding themselves in. It is, with some variation, the same question he's been asking all along, as he is supposed to be doing. He's there to learn, after all. She replies that love will not deny any request made in the proper way, just as God does not deny any rightfully asked prayer. She tells Dante that she was a virgin sister, that is, a nun, But also, if Dante will look more carefully at her beauty that has grown more intense here in heaven, if he looks, he will recognize her as Picarda, the virgin sister of his dear friend Foresi Donati, whom Dante has just spent several cantos with in the Purgatorio. Having given her name, she then answers the second part of the request. She and the others are in this place because they turned from the vows they had made. Oh yes, Dante says, now I recognize you. Sorry it took so long. All of you are glowing with such divine splendor that it takes a minute to register what you look like. And then comes the question that maybe we too want to ask. It seems a very natural question, but it completely misunderstands what's going on. You're down here on the lowest sphere, Dante says. Don't you wish you were higher up in the scheme of things so you could experience more and have a deeper love? Picarda and all the other souls with her smile at how far Dante has misconstrued the situation. Brother, Picarda says. Of course she calls him brother. We recall that this is the only relationship in heaven. Brothers and sisters. Brother, we attune our wills to that of the divine will, the divine love, which has placed us right here. All of us here in heaven willingly accept our place in the divinely appointed scheme. That's where we find our peace. In other words, as Dante now realizes, everywhere in heaven is paradise. There are no real gradations of bliss, even if it may be less intense in one place than another. But as usual, the answer to one question gives rise to another question for Dante. What was it that caused Picarda to break her vows? And so she answers, briefly telling him, what presumably he already had heard about, that she had taken vows in the order of the poor Clares, a strict Franciscan order but one day men invaded the convent and forced her away to get married. Dante doesn't tell us this, but we know that these men were under orders from Picardo's brother, not the good Forese but the scheming, cruel Corso, whom we know ends up in hell. Corso needed his sister to make a strategic alliance with another powerful family, and so he just took what he wanted that doesn't go into this. She doesn't complain, or blame, or regret. She moves on and points to another soul next to her, Constanza, who similarly was taken from a convent to make a strategic marriage, this time with the imperial family, but although outwardly she had to break the vows, inwardly she still held on to them. She lived up to her name, Constance. And like most of the other souls we have met in this afterlife, after she has finished what she has to say, Piccarda stops, or rather she shifts modes and sings an Ave Maria as she gradually fades from view. We might picture her fading like a fade-out in the cinema, but Dante says it's like the way a heavy stone will fade away when you drop it into deep water. Dante watches her fade as long as he can and then turns back to Beatrice, who now is shining so brightly he can't look for long, and this delays the next questions he has to ask her. And there the canto ends. The canto opens and closes with Dante gazing at Beatrice. There are three episodes in the middle, Dante's misconception about the figures he perceives in front of him, Dante's question to Picarda about her identity and her answer, and then Dante's question about whether they are happy here, placed at the lowest sphere of the heavens. This last is the really problematic part of the canto, and we'll have to spend some time attending to it. In mythic imagery, the moon is frequently associated with water, and the canto opens with images of water. Those reflections are like images seen in water. And then we have the comparison, or rather contrast, to Narcissus, which I'll speak about in a minute. Water appears in some imagery in the middle, and then at the end of the canto, Picarda and the others fade away like a stone sinking in the water. This is thus a very fluid canto, representing the shifting currents of our lives, which can deflect us from our intended course, the course that we may have vowed to follow but have been swept away from. Now, I'm always amazed at the way Dante is able to call up one after another story from Ovid's Metamorphoses stories that can help illustrate what is occurring in the Divine Comedy at the moment, but also can add so much more meaning on other levels. Here, Dante's error about the figures he perceives and thinks are reflections is labelled the opposite of the error of Narcissus. Narcissus, an irresistibly beautiful young man, looked into a pond and apparently, for the first time, saw his own reflection looking back at him from out of the water. He assumed it was someone else looking at him from under the water, and since he was, as I've said, irresistibly beautiful, he could not resist the appeal of his own face. In my own mythic interpretation of the story, i like to see Narcissus as finally perceiving the beauty deep within himself. And thus he becomes an image of the great discovery we, we, <laughs> we all have in store at some time, experiencing that we are all beautiful by our very nature, despite all the flaws we see on the surface and magnify in our own estimation. But Dante is using the story in a different sense. Narcissus saw his reflection and fell in love with it, assuming it was a real person. Dante sees these real faces and thinks they are reflections, a kind of opposite or reflective pair of mistakes. And here again, as we've seen before, is a shift in perspective. Dante's once again seeing things the wrong way around. He has far to go before he can fully, what should we say, be fully intellectually mature. The image also demonstrates the graceful way of seeing other people. We want to see the other person not as a reflection of ourselves as Narcissus did, or as a reflection from somewhere else, like the candle in the mirror from the previous canto. We want to see the other person as he or she is, not as a reflection of ourselves, or what is called a projection of something in ourselves. I may be, for instance, unduly concerned about money, especially my lack of it, and may project this exaggerated sense of money onto someone else and overvalue that person as a rich man, or scorn the person as poor and beneath contempt. I am not seeing that person, but a reflection of myself. Or I may see the other person as a reflection of that person's culture. Yes, that culture shines through the person, but it's not the person. We want to look beyond the person's color or heritage or achievement and see instead the person itself, himself, herself. This is Dante's first experience with these heavenly souls, and it becomes a lesson in how to see other people. There have been smaller lessons before, such as Pope Adrian in Purgatory turning aside Dante's reverence for his office as Pope, and we see it also in the only valid relationship among saved souls being that of brother and sister. Forget everything else. See the person as the person. Well, there's also deflection, as Dante is about to acknowledge that Beatrice has indeed resolved his difficulties about the moon spots, and he has worked out the conclusion, but he is deflected from this by the sight of those dim figures over there. He turns from Beatrice, and then he turns around to see the figures whose reflection he thinks is appearing in front of him. Lots of turning here. Dante is in a confused whirl, which will take a few cantos to resolve, I think. When he first speaks to Picarda, he tells us he speaks like someone confused by too much eagerness. <laughs> Well, who wouldn't be excited on finding oneself rising through the heavens with the dearest woman in the world? But Dante's eagerness, as he is aware now, is rushing him along too fast. He needs to slow down and listen. That is what Beatrice advises him, too. We have to spend some time considering the position of Piccarda and the others on the moon. Literally, we are told that they are placed there because they broke their vows specifically in the case of Picarda and Constanza, the vows they took as nuns, equivalent to marriage vows to Christ, remaining virginal, that is, not marrying any human man. Being forced to marry another man meant they broke those vows. And we're told there are many other figures there with them, so we're not talking about just a few. It makes me wonder how many medieval women were snatched from convents where perhaps they had sought refuge away from a life dominated by men and by power politics. Well, one way to see this episode is as a companion piece to the episode in the Inferno with Francesca da Rimini, whose damnation shocks us. She, like Picarda and Constanza, was placed in a marriage she hated, though there were no vows broken, yet. Her husband was cruel, her brother-in-law was handsome and cultured, In her lonely life, surely surely we can excuse her for having given in to that kiss and all that ensued. It's too harsh to condemn her to hell for this. Well, as you remember, there's a lot more to it than just this. Francesca's mind has gone, and all she can do is blame others and muddle her own history. But initially, we usually feel that her position in hell is unwarranted. Many people still believe that Dante was just being ironic on some level. And Dante himself, remember, is overcome by the whole incident and falls into a faint. And similarly, in some of the early cantos of the Purgatorio, we see several notoriously wicked souls, like one Conte da Montefeltro, who surely deserved to be in hell for the hateful things they did in life, but because they repented at the last minute, their souls were saved we should be shocked by this, too. It's as though Dante, early on in each canticle, tempts us with the most extreme, the most outrageous cases to get us to think a little more carefully about what is going on in these regions. And so I think it's right that we should be scandalized, more or less, by seeing Picarda condemned, as it seems, to this lowest sphere for something she had no control over. It seems that they are being relegated to this lowest part of heaven as a kind of punishment for having broken their vows. This doesn't seem fair. It's not really correct to say they broke their vows. It would be better to say that their vows were broken, and not by them, really, but by the men who grabbed them and forced them into marriage. Could they have refused? Maybe, but maybe not. Remember, as Beatrice said, Picardo will tell Dante the truth, and she says nothing about having any choice in this matter. This issue will come up again in the next canto. Now, not having any choice means it's not a moral or immoral act. It's not a sin to be forced to break your marriage vows if you did not will this. So we must remove the thought of this being any kind of punishment. Maybe we could see their being here as something to do with having been broken themselves, having had their souls diminished or bruised by being dragged from their life goals. Does this make sense? But what still bothers me about this lunar sphere is that it seems its souls are placed here for some deficiency, whether it's their fault or not. Is there some more positive quality here? And I think we need to look at this more carefully attending to what Dante says and trying to build the significance, as we do say in a novel, by considering everything we're told. Dante, with his earthly limitations of mind, asks whether Picarda and the others there feel a kind of resentment about being in the lowest place, as though they are swayed by our mundane, ego-centered sense of being slighted. That's a kind of envy. Why can't I have a nice house like my cousin's? It's not fair that I work so hard and live in these rented accommodations while they just inherited her daddy's money and have a ten-bedroom house. Or if our team is relegated to the bottom of the league, we... We? Well, some of us, I suppose. We expect them to fight to aim for the top and keep fighting until they rise up. But these are earthly considerations. They don't apply to heaven because that state of grace that defines heaven is concerned with the reality of the present moment, not with desiring to be somewhere else or to be someone else. Be here now. That doesn't mean we here on earth cannot hope or strive for better things, but that even in such hope and striving we accept where we are right now. And in that acceptance we meet the present moment and experience the joy that is there. And this, it seems to me, is just what Picard explains to Dante. The souls there are joyful in that situation because it is the will of God, and they are united to that will in which, she says, rests their peace. Now, how do we know the will of God? It is manifested in reality in the present moment. And as we may have experienced ourselves, once we accept the present reality, except that what is happening right now is what is happening right now, for better or worse, then we do experience a kind of peacefulness. Notice, by the way, I don't say we acquiesce in the present moment. We don't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, I guess that's just the way things are. I'd better give in and not make a fuss. No, that's a version of sloth, surely. In accepting the way things are, we become aware of them, aware of the pain and danger, as well as the pleasures. And it is in this place of awareness that, in fact, we are best prepared to think of the best ways to overcome the pain and injustice around us. Again, I ask, does this make sense? If not, well, here's your chance to think further about this as you refute what I'm saying. But first, look where I want to go next. Maybe the essence of Picarda's experience is not her breaking her vows. She was oppressed. Circumstances drew her away from what she had dedicated herself to. And her soul showed its strength by, as she tells us, accepting that this was happening. She didn't, as far as we know, sulk in resentment or seethe in anger at her brother for having done this to her. She didn't, as many of us might be tempted to do, she didn't deny that this was happening or hope that it might magically go away. She accepted the reality and turned her soul to deal with it, just as Beatrice tells Dante to turn his eyes on the reality of the figures in front of him, not looking back for some explanation that isn't even there. And here, then, is the positive quality of the souls on this sphere. Their strength lay in facing oppression and finding some moments of peace and grace within it. Constanza, we are told, had the shadow of the nun's veil taken from her, implying that the true veil, her devotion to God, still remained in place. The spirits Dante meets here, I propose, are characterized by enduring through hardship and keeping alert to the will of God which in earthly life is found in the present moment. There's a little more to be said about this, I think. We saw in the Inferno and Purgatorio that the souls in any given category can be regarded as defining not only the specific sin being dealt with there. Thus the souls who were violent against themselves were not just suicides or profligates, but they represent any act whereby we do violence to ourselves. And so here too. The moon contains... Not just those souls who broke their religious vows, or had them broken. They represent, as we've been saying all along, a specific state of our soul. In this case, the state of our soul when we honestly and gravely face whatever oppression or hardship our life at present is throwing at us. We have seen plenty of examples of the violence and hatred that pervaded Dante's world, and the changes that people suffered one party on top now, then another, and, and most personal of all, that catastrophic change for Dante, his exile. There were plenty of occasions to ground oneself in the reality of the present moment, the will of God, during these times. And we also see, of course, all the pain and injustice in our world, both the larger world and our more immediate circumstances. We are under the influence of the moon, not lunacy, but mutability buffeted by these changes like the changes of the moon or maybe lunacy in the sense that the world is going crazy we keep the faith despite the adverse circumstances which would otherwise throw us off course our outward veil might be torn off but like Constanza we retain that inward faith we are having our moon moment and like Picarda our deeper inner beauty is shining out making us (laughs) almost unrecognisable from the ordinary selves people usually see us as. I don't think I need to suggest examples of when these moon moments may occur to us. We all can find such times easily enough, times when our plans have had to change, and times when we have accepted these changes and remained grounded, and our eyes on our Beatrice, which is what Dante does at the end of the canto, preparing to ask further questions. Now, look, I'm a little hesitant about this podcast. I know I have pushed the canto in a direction that perhaps it does not warrant. After all, both Beatrice and Picard explicitly say that the defining trait of this sphere is having broken vows, in other words, a deficiency in the soul. I've turned it around, as may be appropriate in this canto of turnings around and tried to offer us a vision of how the canto can help us define certain moments of grace in our own lives. I hope it helps. But the questions remain. The canto ends in suspense. Dante has questions for Beatrice. We'll get to those questions and Beatrice's answers in the next canto. See you there.